Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman, Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum, recording from New York. And also recording from New York, we have... I'm here, Evan. I'm here. I'm here. I know you worried about me. I was all over the world, and I'm back. Eli Koaz, Communications Director. And there you are. We have a special guest, not even a guest. A new host, all the way from the Netherlands, or Belgium. Both. Please introduce yourself. Please introduce yourself. Well, thanks for having me, guys. My name is Margot, Margot Niker. I am the new Policy and Communications Associate, and I was born in the Netherlands, but grew up mostly in Belgium, spent some time in Israel as well. And you speak 17 languages? No, I speak three fluently. Oh, wow. I know... That's like a little bit of Hebrew. And and I've tried Arabic, so we'll see where that goes. So we'll, we'll so call that, it that's like between the podcast hosts. Three and what three is that? quarters. Twelve languages between the podcast. Hosts? I would say twenty five. Twenty five. Twenty five. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I mean, what what are we talking about this week? So this week, among other things, we are talking about Netanyahu in the West Bank campaigning on the issue of sovereignty or annexation, as we would call it. We have the possibility of Trump making some kind of a diplomatic gesture that would benefit Netanyahu's campaign, as well as Netanyahu's world tour in the lead up to the election, as well as a check-in with Benny Gantz's campaign, seeing what's going on there and what's not going on there, and then talking about the polls. Of course, how could we... (laughs) How could we forget the polls? Eli loves polls. polls. And what we're not going to talk about this week, we're not going to talk about Nauru, because I think we filled up our Nauru quota last week. Nauru is a Ah, small island nation in in the the South Pacific, yes. Yeah, and it's the world's least visited country, as we learned last week. And it's the country that recognized Jerusalem. It recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital last week. So we've used up our Nauru quota for the year, and we are never going to talk about it again this year, this decade, possibly in the life of this podcast, which I guess in saying that I'm implicitly hoping that it's going to last more than 10 years. But let's move into the topics. So Netanyahu and the West Bank, what's going on there? Well, um, Netanyahu, he made, I think, two prominent West Bank stops uh, this week. The first uh, was in Elkanah, which is a smaller settlement in the West Bank. And there he was speaking to, I believe it was a group of, was it a, you know, it was stu- a group of students. And he pr- promised. They were like young students. Young students. Like little kids. It was almost like, like, yeah, I think kindergartners and elementary school students and an interesting place for him to make his big promise, I mean, which he has made before, but his promise to apply Jewish sovereignty to all uh, the Jewish settlements in uh, in the West Bank. Um, I, think it's I think it's particularly telling, by the way, that he used the phrase, he said, Jewish sovereignty and not Israeli sovereignty, which is more troubling on a political level because... He's tying the two together, basically. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and we can go back to that connects even to the nation-state law and to all sorts of other changes that have happened in the last government to kind of set the stage for gradual uh, West Bank annexation. So that was one stop. And then the second stop, which happened later in the week, was in Hebron. Netanyahu was there for the 90th anniversary of the 1929 massacre in which I believe 67 Jewish residents of Hebron were killed by Palestinian rioters. It was a major event in the mandate period. The British police were there and did nothing, destroyed the existing Hebron Jewish community. And Netanyahu was there sort of to leverage that as legitimizing or justification for the presence and actions of the current Hebron Jewish community, which is there today, 
And of course, the 1929 massacre is something that is a key part of the narrative that the settlers in Hebron talk about today. It was not the same Jewish community that exists today that was that came in after 1967, but that was kind of the basis of his visit. And he kind of issued a similar message in Hebron that he told the kindergartners in Elkanah, which is that we're never leaving, we're here forever, and that's that. Um, this was the first time in 20 years that Netanyahu was there. The last time he was there was in 1998, in his previous term as prime minister. It definitely says something about what Netanyahu is trying to do. And also, obviously, Hebron, a very controversial, heated kind of environment with the settlers that live there are some of the more extreme settlers, Palestinian uh, side of the city. There's a lot of support for Hamas. And we saw some riots, some small riots in response to Netanyahu's visit. But I think this points to the larger picture of Netanyahu's strategy, which is trying to, to widen his base on the right as much as he can um, to try to get votes in particular from the only remaining party with a significant support that is under the electoral threshold in almost all polls, though they were over in one, with Sma'ya Hudit, the Jewish Strength Party, which have a strong base in the West Bank uh, in, uh, in Jewish settlements. Right now, they have around two or three seats. Those seats will be pivotal if Netanyahu wants to form a government, a right-wing government that will pass a immunity. We should clarify also that that's two or three seats worth of votes, but in order to make it into the Knesset, you need four seats worth of votes, which comes out to... 3.25% of the vote. So essentially these Could are what... three seats too, but it's very unlikely. Right. So these are what we're talking about being so-called wasted votes. Don't you wonder how this is going to affect in terms of the polling and the number of seats that will come out on the right? Because he does want to have a Likud stronghold, right? And there's too many seats that go to these smaller parties or it goes to Avigdor Lieberman, for instance. Avigdor Lieberman may or may not join his coalition depending on the orthodox, right? He's made that very clear. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, will his strategy work? Well, so are you are you asking, in order to have a coalition, he needs these smaller right-wing parties? Yeah. I think that's a great point because in the past, in order to get to a coalition of 61 plus seats, he would need those other smaller parties. But I think at this point, Netanyahu has come to this realization that he might not get that traditional coalition, and he just wants to be clearly the largest party in the Knesset to make sure that he gets the first shot at forming the government from President Reuven Rivlin, and possibly you could have some sort of U.S. intervention in that time frame where Trump maybe puts forward this Trump plan or maybe endorses some form of annexation and then puts the ball in the kind of center, center right Kaholavan's court to say no to that sort of thing and not let BB steward that process along. Yeah, and I also think that Netanyahu, um, his main concern right now is the wasted votes. Um, I don't think he realistically he knows like that Ayala Shaked's party will have a, a significant amount of seats, probably between eight and ten. And I don't think. He, he would prefer that those votes be Likud votes, but at the same time, I think it's more important to him to get those parties that are under sure. the threshold. And he already did that uh, with the Zeut, Moshe Feiglin's right, party. He did that last week. Um, we didn't see that that led to an increase in Likud performance in the polls, but again, hard to tell from polls uh, about the weight of that decision. Right, but, and it's only been a week, and each of these polls has like a 3 to 4% margin of error, and we're talking about a party that had, what, under 2% of the vote in most over of the two, polls. Yeah, and they had over 2% in the last election. They had 
about a hundred and I think they had a, around a hundred thousand votes, which is, which is significant. Otsma Yehudi, the Jewish Strength Party, as I mentioned, will be very interesting to see if he can uh, get an agreement for them to withdraw, because unlike Moshe Feiglin's voters with uh, Zeud, who are kind of voters that I feel like they float around the the political map in between parties, the Jewish strength voters are pr- pretty uh, devout. They'll stay with, uh, uh, they, they voted for uh, the variations of this party throughout the years. They're hardcore uh, settlers who want Netanyahu to stay prime minister for the most part. Um, at the same time, they want there to be like a right-wing anchor to, to the, uh, the government. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary of Netanyahu's strategy at this point. It's not the traditional race to 61, and I think as Margot identified, that would be the case in the previous elections, and this is kind of a deviation from the way that Netanyahu, or really anyone who would want to be prime minister, would have been doing things before this time around. It really kind of showcases how this election is different from the others. I think Netanyahu's strategy is still going to be to get to 61 seats with the ultra-Orthodox parties and with Yamina. That's still going to be a strategy. It seems unlikely. Right now, he's at about between 54 and 56 with those parties. If he can get Otsma Yehudi support and their withdrawal, he could probably he'd be around 58, 59 possibly, but he's not going to be able, it's going to be very hard for him to form a government without those 61. He'll either have to get, break up blue and white, or maybe convince, it, the math is hard, difficult for him without without that. So we'll, we'll need to really follow and see how that yeah, Math has always been difficult for me too, but what I would say is that I think you're right that he would like to get to 61 seats, and that's the easiest way for him to form a coalition in an ideal Likud scenario, but this time around, he also has to have these alternatives for him to keep in mind as he's going into the coalition negotiation period because he can't count on 61 this time. That's his aspiration, that's his objective, but I don't think he can count on it this time. Well, I mean, I think for him, that's the, if he can't get the 61, he's going to have, he knows that he'll have a tough time remaining prime minister. It may still be possible, but he he's going to put everything he can in order to get that to that number, and um, odds are against him, but the odds have been against Netanyahu before. That's why we're in this place again. Mm-hmm. That's, and that's, that's why exactly Evan right. is still not good at math. That's not why. Why is that, Evan? Why is that? That goes into a whole lot of elementary school trauma. Um, and we'll talk more about your math when we get to the polls. In any case. Should we talk about Trump? We should. We should we talk should. about Trump. And do you know anything about Trump that we don't? I mean, wh- I mean, I've never been at a Trump rally. Have you, Evan? I've, I can't say I have. Margo? I can say I have, yeah. Really? And, and I have. <laughs> what were you there for? What was I As there for? As a supporter? For? Or? No, 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 no. I, I went undercover to his rally, yes. I, I decided to go with a Were you wearing friend. a red hat with I, four I have, on it? I have the MAGA hat, and I had a, what's it called, a belt buckle that says America on it, like M-U-R. Oh, M-U. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that taking it a little too far, though? Like, are you, at that point, are you a caricature? Do people believe that? It was that? supposed to be a caricature. Right. But was, did people find it compelling? Did they walk up to you and, and say MAGA? Like, what, I, didn't what have, they I didn't have any. I didn't have any issues. I, did people I know you were born outside of America? No. No one said send her back. No. Okay. No. Because we, we know did, that they're prone they did, to saying that. They did diss CNN again, so that was fun to watch live. 
But yeah, the tab picked it up and wrote an article. It was a satirical article. <laughs> we will definitely look into that. And it's definitely recommended reading for all of our listeners who want to keep up on Trump's strategy as <laughs> pertains to this election. But <laughs> Trump in this election, in this Israeli election, what's going on here, Margaret? Yeah, no. So there has been rumors that Netanyahu and Trump are in talks of having some kind of defense pact or for Trump to give some kind of diplomatic gesture. We know that last time ahead of the previous Israeli elections, um, Trump recognized the Golan, which gave a boost to Bibi, you could say. He also, over the past year, has been cutting aid to the Palestinians, which kind of makes it seem like... Israel's winning. Israel's winning, and winning. the U.S. is big <laughs> winning, big, big in win. quotation marks. Big win. Huge win. <laughs> and that the U.S. is more than ever one-sided in terms of the issue regarding Israel-Palestine. And then, of course, we can't forget to mention the Jerusalem embassy move. While it wasn't part of the last election, Bibi did sort of use that momentum to show his great relationship with Trump. So I guess my question is, is that if there is a diplomatic gesture, how much of an impact will it have this time around? Do people sort of already know that Bibi and, Net and Trump have this great relationship? Or is Trump out of gifts? He's done a lot in the past year. That's a good point. I think it really hinges on what the gesture is. I mean, the, the various things, I think, have a different impact on the Israeli electorate, things people care about more than others. I think applying sovereignty over parts of the West Bank would be an amazing gift, if he, to, just to give Netanyahu his blessing. Um, obviously, we don't know how that would connect with the... the the, what are we calling it now? The deal? Are we still calling it the deal of the century? Yeah, the deal of the century. The, deal of the, century. The, the ultimate deal. Still, still using Although, that name. We, yeah. That, 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 may, that, that all hangs in the balance because of Jason Greenblatt's soon coming departure, although we'll talk about that later. But, but so if we take that out of the equation, and it seems it's not, uh, it seems that it's not important for, uh, not a priority for the administration, at least before these Israeli elections. I think Trump could uh, give his blessing to some sort of West Bank sovereignty if that is the gift that Netanyahu is looking for. I think this is going to be kind of like maybe a wedding registry where Netanyahu says, well, I want this, this, and this, uh, and Trump will just kind of go along. I think this will be planned, whatever it is. But um, Trump, not, Trump is not necessarily always listening to Bibi. We just saw at the G7 that he was open to the possibility of having talks with the Iranians when Macron brought in the, the Iranian foreign minister. So, yes, there could be a, a wedding registry, but will Trump listen? Right. Trump seems to make policy extemporaneously, as you brought up there with the example of Iran. And we also saw in the Iranian context that some administration officials leaked details of Israeli strikes in Iraq, trying to distance the United States from them and sort of implicitly condemning them. So it's not that Trump and Netanyahu are perfectly in line on policy or in substance, but I think superficially he can put on the image that they're together, whether it sort of diverges from it as, as the possibility that you raised, Margot, I think remains to be seen. And I think that Netanyahu's ideal scenario would be what you're identifying, Eli, that the United States would recognize Israel's uh, presence in, in some parts of the West Bank, but it could also be maybe a sort of more vanilla statement from the American administration just saying we stand behind Israel completely or we stand behind Israel's security. Uh, yeah, and I would also, I would add that um, Netanyahu, he, the, during this entire campaign, it's almost him gloating about his relationship 
with mostly with the big two, and by the big two, I mean Trump and Putin. Uh, maybe I'll give Modi an honorable mention. Uh, he's gotten on a few billboards, but he's the big two and a half. Uh, he's the exactly yeah. the big two point five. So yeah, we've seen like Netanyahu, another league, those billboards with Trump, with uh, Putin, and I think Modi got on one. Um, yeah, he's well. he's on the ones and, that are hanging from the weekly we, headquarters in Tel Aviv. We saw a few days ago Netanyahu releasing a uh, election video with this was a Trump endorsement from 2013 before Trump just says vote for Bibi, he's my guy, I love Bibi, he's the best. And so that video just a full on endorsement which I don't think would be posted without some sort of approval from the White House. So they'll just look at, at the best way to kind of give Netanyahu the boost that he needs. And it looks like it's somewhere, it surrounds the idea, has to do with the idea of, of sovereignty in the West Bank and garnering right-wing support. I don't think Iran, obviously, is not, that's going to be more of a losing issue for Netanyahu right now because he, he campaigned in the last election about taking credit for obviously getting the U.S. to withdraw from the JCPOA. And that was something that he, where he kind of, uh, you'll remember in 2015, he spoke at Congress. Netanyahu can't frame it this time around as an issue that he's going to be winning on. And of course, winning is big for Netanyahu and big for Trump. Yeah, he, only because talks about, as Margot mentioned, the possibility of renewed U.S.-Iran talks about some sort of uh, nuclear deal. That obviously concerns Netanyahu. And, it, and as far as the possibility that you raise Margot that he's out of gift or that he's already done so much, any of the things that he's done previously, even though we spoke about them as being in the context of the previous campaign, there's so many photo ops, there's so many videos that they can just recalibrate and put into ads. I mean, the photo of Netanyahu and Trump is not new, and yet it's found its way onto Likud headquarters this time around. Of course, Photoshop to make Netanyahu stand just as tall as Trump. But this is a key part of his campaign is showing that he is the only suitable and competent steward of Israel's foreign affairs. And, and that's also kind of why he wants to go to Russia in the next couple of weeks. He's supposed to be meeting with Putin and Sochi, as Eli described them as being the big two. And that shows, I think, both that he can maintain the relationship with the United States, Israel's biggest partner, and also manage the relationship with Russia, especially with Russia having close relationships with Israel's rivals and enemies like Iran, like Syria, and so on and so forth. And obviously, whether or not this will make a big difference in the election is something that it's kind of hard to, hard to, to predict. And we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, but Netanyahu is definitely going to focus on getting all this, as many headlines as he can that involve his close relationship with Vladimir Putin. And while we're talking about Trump, we've just learned that there may be a change up in his Middle East peace process team. Jason Greenblatt, who's been the special envoy to the Palestinian-Israeli issue, is on his way out and has given in his resignation. And the word is that Avi Berkowitz may be his new replacement, who happens to be an aide to Kushner and has worked closely with Kushner in the past. Right. He works for this administration. He's sort of Kushner's protege. He's very young. He's 30 years old. So the potential is that his lack of experience could raise some issues. It's something that we'll have to pay attention to and see who comes in to replace Greenblatt. There's also talk that while Berkowitz could also take over some of his responsibilities, some of it could also go to Brian Hook, who's the State Department official, one of them working on the Iran issue. And Greenblatt has left some shoes to fill. He, he was certainly a very visible presence on this issue, though I'm not sure a constructive one. He was very active on Twitter. We know that he liked to pick fights with Saeb Arakat, PLO Secretary General on Twitter. 
they did not get along. And we'll have to see if his replacement gets along with Ericot better on Twitter, although my money is on that they will not get along very well. It's a good bet. It's a very safe one. I like your math, Evan. I like the math. <laughs> no math required. So we've discussed Benjamin Netanyahu and his partners in his campaign in the White House, or supposed partners. And now let's look at the other side of the campaign, Benny Gantz and Kahol Avan, and what they're up to and what they're not up to. They've been a little quiet this time around, but Benny Gantz is now back out and about making statements to the public, to the press, to different advocacy groups, and at a conference um, organized by a religious Zionist organization, he said that he wouldn't repeat the Gaza withdrawal of 2005, and that if there were to be some sort of territorial withdrawal, that there would have to be a national referendum. Okay, well, Evan, I'll add uh, just two quick notes on this. The first, um, Gantz obviously um, is campaigning to try to attract some right-wing Likud voters, and obviously the, the stage where he gave these remarks was a stage that is, let's just say, lean to the right when it comes to uh, their Israeli political uh, views. And also, it's reflective of the basic law that was passed in, in 2014, where a national referendum or a two-thirds Knesset majority are required to any for any territorial uh, withdrawal. There's obviously it's a law that can be that can be changed, but I, I don't think that it's controversial, especially in the build-up to an election. If you disagree with me, uh, feel, feel free. Speak now or forever hold Speak my now peace, or, or have a referendum hold. on my peace. And again, that. So here's the thing: I don't think that there's an issue fundamentally with Gantz campaigning to his right. We're trying to meet people where they are and cast as broad a net as possible. And certainly, that's what they've been doing. I think even focusing a little more on the right than on the left. However, the problem for me is that he's making this sort of comment proactively. It's one thing if the question is put to him. What, where do you stand on this, which is already embodied in basic law, versus saying that this is going to be their policy? If we were at a stage where there was going to be a serious territorial withdrawal, which I don't think we're there, I think that it's possible that they would have that two-thirds majority or 80 out of 120 Knesset members to overturn the basic law. I think that national referendums on these kinds of issues, on issues of that level of importance, risk going completely in the other direction. We're seeing with Brexit now, with the Brexit referendum in 2016 and now the three years of fallout. I would seriously worry about how things would go with a referendum on territorial withdrawals in Israel. It's possible that you would get a majority, but I think it hinges a lot on voter turnout and there would be a serious effort, I think, to keep people who would vote for a territorial withdrawal to keep them at home. But I just disagree. I think uh, a matter of such uh, importance to a country's future. I know I, I hear your concerns, but I think um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the national referendum um, as long as every citizen over the age of 18 can vote. I mean, I'm hoping that this is obviously talking about all Israeli citizens, not just Jewish citizens of Israel. So I think that it's it's fair. I don't think it's that controversial. Well, look how many, I think we look can, how many Israeli Arabs I think, voted in the last I, election. I think me, so now let's talk about the polls. For uh, what Evan uh, talks about as Kohovan doing nothing, which they are. I mean, they're pretty much. They not, are and they aren't. They're not doing that much, but for people who are not doing that much, to be pulling neck and neck with the Likud, pretty impressive. They seem I mean, to do I don't something. know if there's a magic potion. I don't know what it is, but I mean, if we're looking at the two latest, we have the Likud. This is ch- channel uh, 12, Hachadashot. Uh, the Likud and Kohovan tied at 32. Then we have the joint list at 10. 
Yemina and Yisrael Beitenu at 9, UTJ United Torah Judaism at 8, Shas at 7, the Democratic Union at 7, and Labor Gesher at 6, and under the threshold at 2.5%, which equals about three Knesset seats, again under the threshold, Otsma Yehudit. And if we look at how this divides with the blocks, we have 41 seats which are considered right wing, 15 which are considered ultra orthodox making 56 for that Netanyahu block that we've been talking about. We have 45 on the center and left, 10 seats for the Arab parties, and 9 seats for Israel Beitenu. If we move to Channel 13 and our favorite pollster, I'm sorry that we're picking favorites, Camille Fuchs, because he is... He's a previous guest he on is this a podcast. podcast guest, and, ob- and he also predicted his exit poll was closest to accurate when discussing in the, in the previous elections, in the April elections. So... Evan, please give us these the results. So he has Likud at 32 seats, Kacholavan at 32 seats, 32 and 32, they are tied. And then we have Yisrael Beitenu at 11, we have Yamina at 10, we have the Joint List at 10, then we have UTJ, the Ashkenazi Ultra-Orthodox Party at 8, Shas at 6, and then we are down looking at the Democratic Union at 6 seats and Labor Gesher at 5. And that gives the center-left bloc 56 seats. That's including the Arab parties. That is including the Arab parties, and we'll talk about that in a second. The right bloc 53 seats, and Yisrael Beitenu as a bloc of their own, 11 seats. But these bloc distinctions aren't necessarily useful because the center-left calculation there, and in all of the polls that we've been discussing, includes the joint list, which have said that they are not going to sit in a center-left government. Also, it includes Kachol Lavan, which politically has tilted towards the center-center-right more than it has center-center-left, and their main goal is a unity government with Likud, without Netanyahu. It's not a traditional center-left government. Even though it's a possibility, anything is possible, it's just important to remember that when you see polls break down things according to these blocks. That's exactly right, and we're, we're 12 days we have 12 days to go before Israeli elections. I think this this is really when the campaign starts. We've talked a lot about how this campaign was very slow. I feel uh, like we've said off. the campaign is starting uh, like several times throughout have, this campaign. We, we have, have, but I'm saying that this and why, is the, why, So why should people believe us now? This is the, I mean, this is the start of the campaign. This is when Netanyahu is going to do his, when I mean start, I mean this is when Netanyahu is going to really amp up his Gewalt campaign, his campaign where he... He's running around Israel to the beach, the beaches with his with his loudspeaker, uh, trying to get everyone to vote. Where he's going to? I mean, we heard Netanyahu's new song. He was already on today. the beach with his loudspeaker in an earlier commercial. So maybe the campaign started then. Well, you know what? What I mean is that I mean, we've had almost nothing happen. Almost nothing. We had here and there for about two months. And I'm just saying these these twelve days are going to be full of developments that will that will affect this race. Anything okay. can happen. So yeah, that's the situation right now with the polls. Again, watch closely to see if Netanyahu can forge a last minute deal with Otsma to try to increase the right wing bloc. And otherwise, I think we have a very interesting twelve days ahead. Coalition making is just as exciting. Yeah, it seems like it'll be a challenge with these numbers. I'm certainly challenged with numbers. <laughs> Evan is challenged. <laughs> I think the topic I think, of so this. I think we should conclude with some, maybe some tr- math Here's trivia math. For, for Evan. So, oh, Margo, sure. what do you think? Okay. What's three times three plus three? Twelve. Wrong. Wrong. 
Right. Yeah, you do no, three plus three first. No. No, it's PEMDOT. No, you do multiplication first. No, you don't. Yes, you do. See, here's the thing. <laughs> I think my I think my math skills were unfairly maligned in this episode. I think I played along because I'm a good sport, but I think the real math culprit here is Eli. That's why he's project. You're projecting. You know what? I can see that. Yeah. Projecting what? Projecting your poor math skills. No, I'm great at math. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like uh, Andrew Yang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like Andrew Yang. I'm uh, I'm great at math. Right, actually, right now, you're just saying words, not numbers. I actually participated in a very prestigious math competition in high school. I believe that. Is that on the internet? Can we look it up? Probably not on the internet. But I, oh, have then a I, but I don't believe it. I have a certificate of completion. If you yeah, want, I'm, I can I'm, get sure, my, I'm sure your mom printed that uh, out. I will get my mother to send a copy, but she definitely didn't print it out. Okay, okay so, so let's, let's wrap it up. Out. So we know where the polls stand, or at least some of them. We know how to add up the numbers. Yeah, so. we only have, also there's only a week left to publish polls, which is something. So now we know where the polls stand, and I believe there's only a couple more days where we can even see polls eight coming Eight more in. days, eight more days, so four days before the election. I mean, on the Friday before the election, which is on a Tuesday, that'll be the last day to publish polls. And we've seen a lot of changes in the, in the last four days of the campaign. We saw both big parties, Likud and Kaholavan, surge in the April elections. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, a lot can change. I think I mentioned this on the last episode, but if you look at where the polls stood, the final polls before the April election, a lot of them were several seats off from where things actually fell. So these polls give you a rough idea of where things are going to stand. Like I think we've said before, you're not going to get some kind of crazy surprise like Likud's not going to pass the threshold or Kakhovavan's not going to pass the threshold. You know generally where they're going to be, but there could be four or five seats in either direction that go in a way that the polls don't reflect right now. So that's our word of caution on that. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Israel Policy Pod. And we will catch you next time. And if you want to continue following the election, you should check out our resources on the 120 Project at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash elections too. And check out our upcoming election analysis programs. We'll be in various cities, including Indianapolis on September 16th, in New York, Chicago, and D.C. on the 19th, and in Boston and Los Angeles on September 23rd. And we hope to see you there. <laughs>